Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Lila Fujiwara. If you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, hi, so my name is Lila. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I've done a, I say that I've had a bunch of different career lives, but the reason I'm here, I think, uh, is that I'm currently uh, working as a freelance uh, TTRPG writer um, and game designer very early in my career. Um, and I've also done some project management um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give some plugs at the end of this, but that's that's my little bio. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I uh, I definitely found out about you or I started following you based on your Substack. I was very interested in your newsletter. So if you are someone who enjoys the Dollars and Dragons um, newsletter, uh, the blogs that I make, and you're interested in learning more about just being a game designer or in the space in general, I do highly recommend Jar of Eyes um, Game Gazette, which is uh, actually one of my the publications that I recommend on Dollars and dragons if you go to like my recommendations or whatever um but yeah so check it out uh you can go there right now and subscribe so yeah. uh let's talk about you and uh let's talk about how you ended up eventually ended up in tabletop games uh where was it for you once you became an, an adult oh man <laughs> am i an adult so i guess uh I, I was saying before we started recording recording that my career history basically has sort of three phases um the first phase uh sort of right out of college was um i was actually in the uh, peace corps um so i was a volunteer um they called it ict but it was basically like uh technology i think ict stands for um, information communication uh, technology volunteer teaching volunteer um so i taught at a stem uh, all girls um leadership academy called Gashore Girls Academy, wonderful school um, in uh, Rwanda. And uh, I did a, a number of things there. Um, but basically, after that experience and coming back to the States, um, I ended up working as a course developer and uh, developer uh, advocate. And we can talk about what those things mean. Uh, but the uh, majority of that was making online courses, which um, Making technical content, I think, has the uh, greatest parallel to some of the work that I'm doing right now with uh, writing adventure modules. Um, and then after that, I spent two years working as a full-time software developer on Google News. So uh, I'm happy to talk about <laughs> more of that uh, or my transition into uh, TTRPGs and kind of how that went. But yeah. Oh, holy shit. You're so overqualified for tabletop. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's the imposter syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. It, that's great. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, I, oh gosh, yeah, we're probably gonna, I would end up, I think, talking to you for like way too long. So let's stay the course on like what's directly related to tabletop. I do want to talk to you about uh, Peace Corps stuff uh, later, though, if that's cool. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so being uh, a developer and being an advocate as a developer, let's talk about that and your time at Google. All right. Um, yeah. So when I was a developer and a developer advocate, that was specifically uh, working at Google. It was specifically working on mobile development, specifically Android because it was Google. Um, so the vast majority of what I did actually um, as a developer advocate was make online uh, training courses and online tutorials, which I, I used to joke that I was like a C-list educational uh, YouTube star. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of videos out there with me attempting to teach people like how to make Android programs or Wearing funny hats and you know doing all sorts of things uh, to keep people interested. Um, I think that you know one of the 
uh, YouTube videos that I watched when I was uh, starting to write was like, it would be good if I could actually quote it, but it was one of the like, how do you get into D&D writing? And um, Celeste uh, Conowich um, actually had this like time code thing that she said, which I like copied, um, which said writing um, adventure modules is a lot more like writing uh, technical documentation than writing short stories. And that was one of the little things where it's like, yeah, I felt like that was true. And that's like kind of an argument that I've been trying to make. And it's really um, validating to hear that coming out of like a successful um, uh, TTRPG writer's mouth. So yeah, I mean, I think that uh, essentially, you know, when you are writing um, an adventure module campaign, you know, arc uh, for people to consume, that is in some sense a a technical document. Um, You have to make it clear and scannable and, you know, easy to, you know, get through and use. You are teaching them something. And then there's this other component where it has to be fun, which I would argue, like, teaching you also want to make it fun and engaging, um, but that's also, like, you know, you have to tell a story. It it, it has to be, you know, engaging um, in those ways. I can keep going if you want, or if you want to dig into that a little bit. You know, you have my rapt attention. Um, I wonder, after you said that you used to make videos for Google, are you interested in doing a YouTube channel? Oh, man. You see, the thing about making videos, like, as part of a company or or organization is they have, like, a full team that was doing it and mm-hmm. i definitely like did creep a little bit on kind of like how the videos were getting made because in college mm-hmm. i um i i uh, actually made like a tv series and was you know interested in um you know filming stuff and doing video production and things but yeah i do not have that whole skill set you know i think one of the things with uh ttrpgs is like everything sounds like so much fun um but i do think that there is a benefit to kind of try to focus and learn one thing so you know mm-hmm. maybe uh, but at this point in time, I'm really trying to uh, figure out how to, you know, write and publish really strong, concise um, adventures and be, you know, known as somebody that that could do that. Amazing. I'm before I forget, because I am neurodivergent, I'm looking at your website. Uh, do you do UX? Do you do website um, design? No. <laughs> okay. Do you like my website? <laughs> I do. I really do. I think it's really clean and like very just, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a template um i definitely did something that was like way over complicated in that um the template where you have to have like a fair amount of technical skill to be able to set it up it runs on okay. like something called jekyll and i'm sorting uh-huh. it through github this is probably like <laughs> alien tongues to most no, people I, uh, I know what github is yeah, yeah i'm hey. i know what code is yeah, yeah. <laughs> coders put stuff on github as their portfolio yeah, that's that's all i know <laughs> and then you're, you're good um yeah, yeah so uh, yeah thank you and i i definitely can't take uh, i can only take credit for looking through like 50 of those and picking that one i, I did oh, okay okay though. yeah i gotcha <laughs> um no it looks great um i just assumed because uh you're a programmer in some way maybe you've done some web development as well but yeah I, okay, super cool. Yeah, I mean, I you know one of the things about working at Google is you get um, you like kind of meet a lot of people that are in like you know that are pretty badass at whatever thing they happen to do. And I've definitely worked with UX people before, and you know talked through issues about stuff. There's a lot of overlap with uh, DevRel and UX to some capacity because like you're you're trying to make uh, information presented in an architecture that is usable to people, and part of that is how it appears on the screen and like mm-hmm. how you can organize the information. So like our docs team definitely had you. UX people attached to it and I was in conversations and stuff with them but yeah ha- presenting information so that it's uh readable and digestible for people hey 
you need to have some conversations with some of these people that are doing layouts for some of these fucking TTRPG books. <laughs> some of these books are awful, but yeah. So like I, um, I've been writing almost specifically just for like D and D five E. Um, one of the, I don't know if I would call this a hack or just like a thing that is, is given is that there's like a lot of templates out there that you could use, um, to get it to look like a D and D book. Um, and there's a very specific style guide. And I think mm-hmm. on one hand that makes it so you don't have to invent a bunch of things from scratch. You don't have to like come up with a full book layout to get something that looks professional and like you know matches everything else. You're 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 hooking into what DMs are used to, like the style that they're used to reading uh, things. On the other hand, like there's de- there's definitely some constraints to it that were sort of like interesting. Like D and D has um has four heading styles and they're in a very particular way and it's very particular about which words you bold. It's pretty much yeah. like only the monster names. Uh-huh. Um, and you know uh, on my you know Substack where I'm essentially trying to write like little mini tutorials on how to do things like i can bold and format things and make bulleted lists like um you know how i want and then D tends to be just these like walls of text i find um mm-hmm. sometimes uh so yeah i uh i don't know that's kind of one of the interesting things i found is it's like pretty constrained as to <laughs> how much um flexibility you have to make a readable document it feels like sometimes yeah i've been looking over the uh project black flag uh example packet and how they have decided to lay things out i think it's really uh easily legible i think it's readable um can you tell i'm a black flag partner um but (laughs) um but the way that they've uh sort of presented the information i think it's very uh legible and it's very interesting what you said about making it so that the users really understand what they're looking at because a lot of the time if you're a g and you're looking at something for the first time, you don't have either the time or the energy in order to sort of digest something um, a lot of the time when you're a GM, because maybe you're just doing it on the side, or maybe you're doing it once a week, and you have a full-time job, you have a lot of other commitments, and you want to just be able to look at something and understand what it is. And having that sort of style guide that fits within all of the other things in the genre is very important, because you are saving people time. You're making it uh, more readable in a lot of ways and you are speaking a particular language um, mm-hmm. in the in the way that it's like it's like basically like if you have like D&D you can consider it to be um, like a genre of music or a style of film um, and you understand like the the takeaways and the you know the really powerful things about it yeah I think when you're teaching something like one of the things you got to keep in mind is like what is all the information that the you know my audience has coming into this and for D&D to some extent you can assume that they've read you know the player's handbook the dungeon master guide you know maybe through another adventure so when you use the same language you're hooking into all of that you don't have to re-explain things yeah wonderful if you could change something about the fifth edition sort of style guide that everyone follows what would it be oh man i think maybe um more ability to like bold things maybe um i think bolding and like bulleted bullet point lists are like things that i fall back on um i i don't want to misquote something because I'm, I'm pretty sure you can put you know bulleted point uh lists and things um but yeah sort of different text styles personally trying to get better at like uh 
figuring out how to use like um, headings uh, appropriately in a way that's like scannable for DMs. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't run a huge amount from like written adventures. I do a lot of homebrew, which is you know probably why I want to be off writing my things. But um, uh, as I have less time, I have been running um, stuff from like Wizards of the Coast books, uh, notably the uh, Radiant Citadel. I'm running a campaign for my family, and um, yeah, so I think there's like reading the adventure material beforehand or like right before you're about to run it mm-hmm. and then there's also like having the book open you know while you have four yeah. people staring at you and, and how can you you know quickly find um whatever it is that you need or the section that you need uh, yeah yeah so i've been thinking about that i don't know if i have any uh silver bullets and i'm right. very interested in uh you know kind of uh if if project black flag is like thinking about usability and the kind of stuff that they're coming up with have you taken a look at the playtest packet uh, i have not <laughs> okay here we go i'm sending it to you right now so right. <laughs> um, if you take a look at it and you open it i wanted to show you something real quick and we can chat about it um you yeah, know totally. how like in D fifth edition uh i would go to view and then if you're on uh adobe right are you on Do- adobe uh i've just got to open in chrome okay uh... yeah I, either way it'll work um so mm-hmm. um as you're looking at like the page two to page five that's character creation it's actually actually it's page three to five so it's mm-hmm. Yeah, it probably, it might be able to fit on just two pages. It's like two and a half. And then they have yeah. a final checklist. So um, if you if you think about that uh, for where 5th edition was, like in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. when they first developed it, pouring through 20 to 30 pages, and then mm-hmm. you're checking all this other stuff, and stuff isn't very, like, concise. But the tabletop industry has really sort of evolved to make information a little more accessible to a lot of people, and then also easy to digest. And there are other games that I think really struggle to grow because it is not providing accessible, easy to use information. If you're trying to learn a new game, you don't want to have to figure out this Rubik's Cube of 40 pages mm-hmm. of character creation. You want like a quick, easy, like step-by-step, like, hey, here's what I would like to do. And Oh man, if you want to talk about stuff outside of the d and I'd be happy to, but um, you just had um, Alex Roberts on, yeah. right? Or like that yeah. came out. Yeah, For the Queen. Yeah is like I think one of the you know sort of master classes is like how do you get somebody uh, mm-hmm. playing quickly um the thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about um uh you know making character design simple uh have you played uh, powered by the apocalypse um games or hacks yeah so it actually just so happens that I was on this show <laughs> um to run uh thirsty sword lesbians for uh that group of people right, right, and right. um yeah I had a lot of yeah I had a lot of fun running it um I really like TSL uh for obvious reasons because I'm trans first of all but yeah it's a fun game it's very easy to pick up and play when I show people the character sheet it's like hey here's the mm-hmm. first uh part of the character sheet it's going to explain everything that you need to do to create this character and then on the second page that's all you need to run the game and it actually explains what how everything works on the character sheet itself mm-hmm. within like one sentence or less for this from the status conditions to the moves to the attributes um, everything is sort of explained yeah and i think it's like it, it, you're basically filling out a form and the options that you have are like mm-hmm. very clear um and it, it's it's sort of interactive i think in a way that like uh you know picking up the player's handbook and uh filling out a 
HIV sheet, you know, isn't in that you're having to look up a bunch of information and then, you know, writing things down on the sheet, whereas uh, Powered by the Apocalypse really has like, okay, which checkbox do you want? Um, Even with things about like, you know, what your name is or what your appearance is, um, that I definitely think, you know, those were um, pointed decisions that a a game designer made about like, how do we get people to making a compelling character quickly, um, but then also get into to playing quickly. So yeah, uh, April did in a great job and uh, all of the TSL contributors, of course, the mm-hmm. um, character creation like flowchart. It's like just basically two pages and it's just paragraphs. It's a like what step one, step two, step three. And then here's how you develop your game. And then here's how you create all the strings between the party members before you start. And then you just play and that's it. <laughs> like everything is, everything's really set up very easily. Every time I've run TSL um, since then, um, since I learned it or, and even in the first time that I learned it and I ran it, um, I just opened up, you know, the back of the book, there's some of these scenarios. Um, and I'm talking about advanced lovers and lesbians, which is mm-hmm. a separate book from the TSL, but I believe they have a couple of adventures and settings or scenarios in the back of the, just the base book. But um, either way, they have this setup where the GM the game master uh in this case for tsl very uh, thematic um to be homoerotic so um the setup for the gm is like you read three or four pages you know all the information you revisit some of the information on page one in order to like brief the players and then uh the rest is just reference for you for locations npcs and that's it and mm-hmm. a general plot which is like two paragraphs and then you sort of maneuver around that um and that style of play is very easy to pick up um i know that a lot of people have about learning new systems um you know for instance pathfinder um but the uh, you know that i would say if like you're learning like a system like pathfinder they did a really good job with the foundry team to uh create a module that makes it super easy to learn mm. and in fact um i i made a i made a twitter thread about this um the best 35 dollars i spent last year um as a gm was buying the beginner box for foundry on uh mm. for pathfinder um i literally downloaded it because i had some missing players and i was like okay i still have three players we want to play um i downloaded the module i paid for it i downloaded it i installed it 10 minutes later I was running Pathfinder 2 because mm-hmm. everything was provided for me on screen. All the math was done. All the math was explained in the mm-hmm. chat box, um, all the formulas and stuff. And people were just able to play and have fun. And, you know, we had access to all the rules um, through the free website that they provide them. And we could just look stuff up if we didn't understand something. Um, so was it was... It, was it designed sort of uh, tutorial-esque where it's like, you know, you start off doing a very simplistic thing and then you're like adding on. Yeah. You know, they make sure that you're adding on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So spoilers for the Pathfinder 2 beginner box. Um, You enter a cellar to resolve uh, the rats who have been eating all of the fish. Um, Uh, Rats. (laughs) Yeah. And then you find that there's a hole that leads to a dark cave. And then within the dark cave, uh, you find like a giant spider and like um, all these uh, undead creatures. Uh, That's that's kind of like a side quest area. And then you run into these kobolds who are serving um, this other kobold. And there's like a green dragon wormling um at the end of the adventure who's optional you just really have to defeat the uh the kobold who's like plotting to do evil things beneath Mm -hmm. the city um but yeah yeah i think there's some really interesting i mean i imagine that this like product is doing it but like some interesting things you can think about about how do i make it so i don't have to read like 40 pages up front like it can still be 40 pages in the first five pages i'm gonna do a thing i'm gonna learn that and then i'm gonna read the next five pages i'm gonna do a thing and learn that yeah absolutely have things build up 
uh, like a tutorial. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that they do really well, um, I'm not sure, I don't know if this is unofficial or official, but there is like a quick start reference guide for combat. Mm -hmm. And it tells you every single common action uh, that you can take within combat. And having stuff like that is just amazing. Yeah. I know that I uh, I can't remember. I think it's Renegade. I don't, I, I don't remember who the current publisher for Vampire is. It's like switched a few times in the last few years. Um, mm -hmm. But they came out with like how to make a character. And it's like a five page PDF. And it helps you navigate that very difficult fifth edition uh, vampire <laughs> core book that's extremely difficult to like reference because you can just go through and you just go step by step. Here are your options, step by step. And then there's one mm -hmm. or two sentences about each uh, ability choice when you're creating your character. And then after you get used to that, then you have a much easier time navigating the book. It's still not good, but um, you have a better time after that. And then, um, yeah, I think having those accessibility options is really important, especially when you're trying to grow your audience for a publisher or if for instance like you're writing something um you're writing an adventure or you're trying to get someone to once they buy the product you want them to play the product and say for instance you write an adventure you want them to play it and then they you want them to tell their friends about it um after they run it and you want those people to have such a good time because they understand the product and they can really enthusiastically play through it yeah no cheat sheets are great i um so actually, the first thing I published was a like completely original self-designed game, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I made off the bat was like a couple of different one, you know, very clearly trying to fit it on a single page, like cheat sheets for um, how to run it. Yeah, that's um, yeah, I I can't stress enough. Like, in I'm I'm on the accessibility train. Like, I you know, coming from uh, the military, which is entirely an ableist organization, uh, mm -hmm. to be quite honest, in in so many different ways, um, the accessibility uh requirement i think for teaching people in this day and age when people's time is so constrained largely by the fact that there is so much out there and then also um, why should someone play your game you need to convince people and that's the reality of it like if you catch someone's attention um you might have their attention only for a little while mm -hmm. so while you have their attention you need to make sure that they understand what it is that they're going to buy what it is they're going to play and um, make it easy for them totally <laughs> so for you uh being a developer for android how did that differ from your advocacy work um at google um there are two kind of parallel paths uh i would say so being a developer advocate was kind of the sweet spot between uh being a techie and, and being a teacher um because you know the the um what's the word i'm looking for like the goal of that job uh is essentially teaching people how to do uh technical stuff but you know i was uh i was in, in meetings with developers a lot of, of the time um you know uh, giving them feedback that i was hearing from the community about the apis and the frameworks and you know the code related stuff that they were making um i also you know was a developer in that i was making sample apps for people to uh be able to see code and see how to build applications themselves which is a an interesting process of like how do you make the simplest you know a lot of the stuff we're talking about how do you get somebody step by step you know growing uh skills one step at a time through uh you know making an android app you know as opposed to like learning a game but you know similar thing you're trying to get them to learn something yeah so so, uh, yeah, so there was a bunch of uh, teaching components that were part of it, but it was all in the context of, uh, you know, doing technical stuff. And honestly, at least at Google, because um, I think developer advocates can mean different things in different places. Basically, everybody there uh, had been a, like, senior Android engineer 
somewhere else and they had been giving like talks at technical conferences kind of in their free time or as like a you know um, little extra uh, cupcake on top of what they were doing as senior engineers and they went hey I actually like talking at conferences talking about how um, people build apps um, you know as uh, maybe a little bit better than you know uh, simply uh, designing apps and then they would switch over um, which was like an interesting little thing for me because I came from a very different path than that and, and definitely fed into some uh, imposter syndrome that I had when I was in developer advocate because I came from this very like um, designing online uh, courses which was like kind of a weird uh, path to get into that role um, so and then being a full-time developer you know I, I had one particular experience it was working on the Google News app which had existed for like 10 years which is different than if you're um, doing what in software development they called like greenfield app design where you're designing something from scratch um, so I was working on you know what you might call like a legacy app or an app that had been around for a while learning this giant code base um making new features but also being responsible for uh you know like dealing with bugs and compatibility issues and stuff yeah i mean we could get into <laughs> yeah I, one of the biggest differences is like um when you're uh like in devrel a lot of the code that i was writing like the purpose of it like it was greenfield quote unquote and that it was like an app that i was building from scratch it was this like most simple beautiful um you know like pure uh, expression of whatever the thing that i was trying to teach you know without any extra cruft uh, um, that would confuse people versus like a app that's out in the world all the cruft is there because you got to put the like 10 years of duct tape to like get the thing to work it has to support um you know phones that uh like google news is everywhere when you open up an android phone so you might have somebody in you know bangladesh looking at google news and you also have somebody with like the newest uh pixel gear uh you know in the states uh looking at uh google news so you're just really serving a ginormous variety of customers it has to work for all of them um you have to test and make sure when you push out features you know everything from like the thing is just straight up broken and showing me a black screen to like you know um uh, there might be like a globalization issue with, I don't know, the um, text being, um, you know, uh, what I would try to say, like uh, reading left to right, right or right to right to left, you know, in a particular location or yeah, <laughs> just a ton of things to think about. So yeah, um, yeah, definitely um, com complexity in, in different uh, areas, uh, I would say. I don't know if this is useful to your listeners, but I think like when I, when I quit and I was trying to figure out like what uh, made me happy, I think that one of the things that I realized about DevRel is I a lot of cases like when I was making courses and stuff had more personal investment in something because I was sort of with a course you kind of you're the face of it you come up with a narrative for it um, you feel a certain sense of ownership for, uh, you know around it um, and in my develop work to some extent I did but it was less I don't know it had less of like my creative soul in it I guess than uh, the work I was doing in, in developer relations yeah okay I'll probably have to listen back to that to fully grasp <laughs> <laughs> no that's fine uh, no <laughs> <laughs> no we'll we'll move on and then when i re-listen to this later i'll be like oh okay uh, yeah yeah well. yeah no that's that's super cool i am very interested in um I'm super interested in like uh, your professional background, obviously. So that that I think that'll be something that I end up uh, contacting you about again moving forward. Because one of the most interesting things, and we were talking about this before we started recording, is as you've noticed, um, most people in tabletop uh, do not work full time in tabletop uh, because it is not a place where 
living wages are being paid. So most people um, have their regular job and then they do tabletop as their hobby, as part-time. And that's also part of why I think that the pay has been uh, very slow to to grow. I think that there are particular publishers or people at the top of the game that have sort of price-locked their products at a certain point to where only they are making money unfortunately, because it costs more money when you're not a giant corporation uh, to produce things, uh, to be quite honest. And um, because they're going to produce, like, they're going to print 100,000, 1 million of a particular book that they come out with, right? But you and me, if we create a project, we need to special order something and then have it shipped here, sort of like take a risk on spending however many like tens of thousands of dollars to like on this project in order to get it out the door and then hopefully people like it and they buy it whereas um a giant entity really has all of that streamlined because they have been in the business for so long yeah i think it's interesting because you know you're talking on one end like competing with wizards of the coast trying to make a you know hardcover book like that i think like that's you know definitely the case and then on the other end there's the issue that like kind of anybody can make and upload a pdf (laughs) sort of thing yeah so it's like a very low barrier to entry but then the people at the top are you know able to pump in all this money and structure and you know stuff into into products yeah Yeah, i think so i think we could talk about either side because the you know there's some things very empowering at least for me as somebody coming in new but it's like gosh sure any i can make a pdf kind of thing like let's go um (laughs) um, have i made you know ten thousand dollars off that pdf no uh and you know that's kind of the other part of it about you know is it is it somebody's hobby is it a side gig uh or you know the the possibly the goal of like is this your full-time uh job yeah there's a lot of people that i kind of follow in the economics uh channel in the dms guild uh discord Mm -hmm. server are you in that um man i'm not sure is this uh <laughs> so it's the, I, there was a d yeah tell me the full name of it also, dm skills like creative lounge yeah i am in that one <laughs> okay okay, okay I, cool. like one of the things i heard early on was that there was a dm skill discord server that was invite mm-hmm. only and i'm like oh how do i get like you know so i guess i, I am at the point where uh i had enough friend to get into the dm skill discord server um right yeah, I just I just asked someone that I knew was in it and they invited me and I was like, okay, yeah. And I had not I had published nothing on DM's Guild. I just like the conversations there because I think it relates to the sort of content that I produce and I need to connect with people like that. Um and it's good to for finding writers as well. If you need a writer or you need an artist. Um, you don't have a network already. Um, getting into things as an amateur, DM Skilled is a really good option uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, you're just building a portfolio that people may or may not see, and it may gain traction um, in a way that you can't do because you don't have a platform. And it is very difficult to build a social platform. You sort of have to learn how to do it, first of all, and then you have to produce stuff that people want to see. So it's like a two-faced problem. It's like a you have the marketing and like the actual, like how do you make content for this platform? And then you have the, how do I make content that's actually good once people see my content? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a, it's a double-edged, it's a double-edged problem that a lot of people like either struggle with one or the other. And uh, there's just not a lot of good routes for people to uh, pursue opportunities, I think, um, or they don't know where they are more or less. But DM yeah. Skilled Creative Lounge, if you're, if you're writing adventures, you're writing anything, you should get in there. And then I think that there are likewise communities for other publishing uh, places like Drive-Thru RPG and 
and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But so drive through RPG, you can get on that Discord without needing to know some. I, yeah, one of the things I find interesting, and I'm actually like curious where you met the person who let you, because that is it's the tiniest thing, but it is a barrier. Like if you are yeah. a literal nobody, like and you don't have a Twitter presence, like I'm not mm-hmm. sure whether just like cold DMing, uh, you know, somebody that you think might be in the, you know, because I was I was trying to figure out how to get in, and I looked at like a Reddit thread that was like, hey, can I get in? And you know, I don't think the person was initially given an invite kind of thing. Yeah. So it's sort of one of those things that like um, I don't think it's like super hard, but like uh, you know, you 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 do have to navigate. Um, which is if you want to talk about uh, storytelling collective, I think that that would like yeah. be an interesting thing we could go into because that is yeah. really like you know potentially level zero kind of thing if you have uh, no yeah. experience. Like that's that's sort of the place that uh, I got started. A lot of people did. Um, I cannot say enough great things about storytelling collective but before we get on to storytelling collective uh i do need to answer your question so it was someone that i uh met through an actual play gig that i hosted Mm -hmm. so i was bringing people onto my platform and i was paying them to be performers on a show um and i met a few different people in the space who were creators um not all of which were uh, actual play performers but some of them like had video performances or they did other stuff that was adjacent to it um and that's how i initially got in touch with them i had like looked them up um and i was kind of in the space and socials and twitter is a networking tool first and foremost Mm -hmm. it is 100 a networking tool so if you're not on twitter i recommend you get on twitter simply because it's easy to find people there and it's easy to see like where people like host their website or if you want to look at someone's portfolio or something like that. That's what Twitter is for, really, um, for me at least. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really cater my content on Twitter to appeal to a broader audience. Um, I have a broad audience now, but my content on Twitter is really catered to creators. So, and that's mm-hmm. how I connect with a lot of people. But anyway, yeah, it was just someone I, that I met through an actual play. Uh, can I say so? I yeah I agree uh, you know 100% Twitter's a networking uh, tool and also in that story like I think the reason that you got connected was essentially because you were uh, creating a a space if that makes sense like you were creating a thing and you were able to like kind of uh, invite um, other people because I guess before so I organized a collaborative project as like one of Mm -hmm. the first uh, things I I did in the TGRPG space and that that is actually one of the things that that really made a difference and and got me connected to people Um, the first game I ever published extremely satisfying but uh, that that in and of itself didn't necessarily uh, connect me uh, to people if that if that makes sense so mm-hmm. I think that you know one of the things that I'm doing on my Substack is actually trying to go through the steps of how you would organize a collaborative project because mm-hmm. I think it is sort of like the networking in that story that you just gave was not just simply being on Twitter it was like <laughs> making a place where you could meet and work with people if that makes yeah. sense which is kind of the same at like I am incredibly awkward and I am like Twitter scares me. This, this is right. one of the things when you brought up networking as a possible topic. I am I am not the person that somebody's gonna look at at like some convention bar and be like, wow, I want to be that person's friend and hire them. I mean, they, I don't know. I shouldn't trash on myself that much, but like I don't feel particularly you know uh, calm. I guess in those situations or like right. necessarily uh, you know that's the best place for me to make connections. And we kind of talked about this a little bit before we hit record. These situations mm-hmm. that you can manifest where you're actually working with people, and especially if you're able and have the 
skill set to be the one that's like coordinating those things. Like that was the way that I felt like I got a little bit of power in the situation and that I had like a little bit of control over my destiny because um, I was getting to meet with people. They were getting to see that like I was an awesome person to work with and um, I didn't have to hope that somebody would notice me or convince somebody to give me a chance if that made I made my own chance to some extent. Um, Yeah, that's 100% it. And I am, it's called like the curse of knowledge, right? Like when you get to a certain place, like in your career, and you advance far enough to where like, when I say something like, um, hey, yeah, I just reached out to these people. And like, you know, they looked at my body of work, or like they interact with me a particular way. I still, you know, if you go back into like my personal history, like I have over a decade of leadership experience, I was a recruiter for a while, I have like the all of these in inherent skills that I kind of take for granted a lot of the time. But really, it came down to me just cold emailing people and saying, I really enjoy your work. And it was like, I, you know, it was a YouTuber, a writer, designer, and another writer, designer. And I was like, I really want to work with you on this project that I'm doing. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for it. Here's what the pay Mm -hmm. is. Here's what the parameters of it is. And then this is what I would like from you. And then if you are interested, we can get together and we can do this. And then I did it. And um, Mm. I don't have a huge YouTube presence. Um, This was back when I was like still thinking about like being a full time YouTuber. But I think I'm less interested in that now. I'm much more interested in podcasting. But yeah, and like people to this day, actually still, uh, it's one of my most popular videos on my Mm. on my channel, uh, because there's nothing out there like it for that product. Uh, It's actually an actual play of a DM skill product that whenever it goes on sale, I get a spike in views because people look for it. And they're like, hey, what is it like to play this? Um, Mm -hmm. so, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I met those people. Yeah. And I also think like, I think there's a difference between, cause cold emailing could mean you cold email somebody and say, Hey, can you give me a job? I I guess. I don't know if I've ever done that. Um, but in your case, cold emailing, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that there are some stories where people just, you know, uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't say that. I I don't know. (laughs) Like that, that kind of stresses me out. (laughs) I will say that's actually how I got my job with that bronze girl. Uh, that was kind of a cold email. I had been in a meeting with Bronze about something else prior to that because uh, we were arranging the actual play for One Night's Trod. Um, mm-hmm. And the initial email was about that. And then after I had been uh, sort of arranging that and Bronze had agreed, but we were like working with difficult timetables because that was around the time that she was doing um, or preparing to do the Dimension 20 uh, thing that she was doing. So we were trying to align that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, of course, you know, I didn't know any of that. It was just like, bronze is always busy. Um, so, and then I, you know, started to work for her at some point, but it really started with like me being in a meeting, like, Hey, we are interested in having you do this gig. Um, what are your rates for this? Are you interested in this? This is what we'd like to do. And then here's the terms of the deal. Um, and you know, let us know if you are interested. And then I, uh, followed up with bronze, uh, cause she was like so busy. She didn't respond right away. Uh, but I followed up after a week or two. I can't remember how long it had been. And she was like, yeah, I'm really interested. I'm just like between conventions right now. It was December, PAX U was going on um, and all this different stuff. So um, at that point, it sort of uh, opened up the door for me in that way. And then I got permission from my contractor boss, essentially, Jake, uh, who ran the who was the creator of the One Night Strahd thing. And I was like, hey, if it's cool with you all, I wasn't their employee, but I wanted to clear it with them. Can I reach out to Bronze 
uh, and ask for a job because I would really like to continue to work with bronze and I would like to, you know, be in that space. And like, it looks like she is doing a lot of stuff and may need a hand in order to uh, start continue producing the amount of stuff mm -hmm. that she's producing. And that's how I ended up, you know, I just emailed her at the right time. That's all it was. I emailed her. I'm not looking to be your friend. Uh, I made that very clear because I was <laughs> I was someone who watched her on Twitch for like a year prior mm -hmm. to emailing her. But um, and I was like a, a loosely a member of her community, like I was mm -hmm. a subscriber and all that stuff. Yeah, I was like, I'm not trying to be your friend. Here's what I can offer. And then I gave her a list of all my organization and my networking, my sales skills. And, uh, you know, and here's what I could do potentially if like you need me to just do some basic editing and like do some YouTube content management mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And then she was like, yeah, I was actually looking for someone to do all that. So I was basically mm -hmm. like an assistant for a while. But yeah, that's how that's how I got my first gig. And in that respect, you know, honestly, besides the fact that she paid me really well, she was wonderful to work for. And she's so fucking smart. Uh, I was <laughs> learning. I was learning shit from bronze like every single time mm -hmm. I interacted with her. Um, so it was um, it was a wonderful experience for me. But it's one of those things where if you're looking for a gig, um, you need to come to the table with something. Um, because it's not just like, hey, I have a heart of gold or I have a lot of motivation. Like that person doesn't know you. So like yep. you need to come to the table with something. And for the same reason, when you're reaching out and you're trying to create projects, I always believe that if you're trying to create a project, you need to find someone that has a strong possibility of being interested in your project in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that based on like their body of work, and then you need to come to the table with what do I think that they might be interested uh, to be incentivized mm. with, like, whether it's like, hey, uh, a livable wage uh, for the amount of work being done, obviously, you're not gonna be able to support someone's full wage, an amount of pay that is commiserate with the amount of work being done, right? So that's the number one thing that most people can do. If you can or you're in a position, and I know this is difficult for a lot of people, um, so I'm not speaking to my entire audience, but if you can work and save a little bit of money just for your project, that's going to make a world of difference in making things happen for you because then you can approach someone with like, you know, hey, I've got, I've got like a budget of three to $500. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? Like if you're coming into this project to work with me and how much work does that translate to you? And then you're mm -hmm. actually talking like real shit. Like you're talking about, mm -hmm. we're going to get something done here because then you have a, a tangible thing that you two can create together. And then there is no feelings of like, I'm being taken advantage of, or this didn't turn out according to expectations. And you're actually meeting people where they like feel respected for their work. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference, honestly. Gosh, there's like 5 million different things that I wanted to say. Cause yeah, I agree with all I'm that. I'm sorry. That, no, no, you're so good. Like to that last point about like showing up with like the financials uh, figured out. Yeah. So I've been writing uh, this like mini series within my mini series about uh, project management for TTRPGs about like the place of money in this whole conversation. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, what, what does adding money to the conversation do, even if it's not like a huge amount of money that you're talking about? And it, it conveys this level of uh, seriousness about what you were attempting to do that is different than if there's no money involved, which kind of comes off as like a, hey, let's just be like cool creator buddies and like make a dream together. Versus yep. if you start going over to the like, here's a royalty split, here's very, you know, cl uh, clarity about that. It, it sets a different um, tone for the project uh, about seriousness. And then also sort of the things that you were saying about some of the people who have been about, around the block <laughs> a few times or who haven't been around the block a few times, like um, are, they might be a little bit uh, skeptical, um, you know, if 
you are not upfront about sort of like what's going on with uh, money stuff, you never want anybody to leave a you know a co-working thing with you feeling that they got you know uh, scammed in some way. Like that was a big thing for me going into this. Is like I know that I will not be able to offer very much, and I want I need people to kind of know that um, upfront. I'm talking a little bit different uh, than you know kind of the tack that you took where you had some money to to pay folks. Um, the first couple projects I did were uh, royalty uh, split um, related. So uh, I, I did these projections of like, how much money are we going to, if we sell this many copies, how much money are we going to make? Like, you know, what will that mean? Um, my most recent project, uh, Out of Luck, which is a, uh, you know, sort of heist adventure uh, set in this uh, Japan analog called uh, Umizu. Um, I, I did a very small royalty split with a person who did my cover and they had... Um, uh, my friend Mahitabel, and they had like commission rates for how much their uh, covers made. So I made like some calculations about how many copies we'd have to sell to like get close to their commission rate. And it was mm -hmm. like, um, I'm very happy because I think that uh, I'm actually going to be able to pay them their, their commission rate for a, a full page um, uh, colored comic, which is essentially what they did for me. But you know, there were some versions of the world where that wasn't the case. So anyways, I'm babbling, but I think yeah. that coming to the table, knowing what you're doing uh, money wise is an uh, important thing if you're starting to talk about collaboration yeah uh that's a beautiful cover by the way i'm taking a look at it right now um so that that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah, they did, did they do it did they do additional art or did you stock art or what did you do for the rest of the art oh, in this project? yep um i will be writing a post about this at some point but um i i drew uh like I think it was eight or nine custom uh, pieces. I borrowed their tablet. I uh, because they did a watercolor cover for me. I was like, all right, I'm gonna color color these in um, watercolor. It took a bunch of extra time, and um, I think it's why a lot of people are buying it because like yeah. you see the pictures and you like it. I also yeah. um, did a, a stock art collage in there. So I did use stock mm -hmm. art. The items that I have in there are all um, stock art images that I found or like museum photos that I then put through various filters in um, Affinity and then like slapped some watercolor paints, you know, behind them. Um, yeah. These skills come from when I was in high school and laid out my high school's like literary magazine. So no, I didn't oh. just burst out of the, you know, proverbial TTRPG womb with like all yeah. these art skills. Like it's yeah. hobby stuff that I've done on the side. So um, yeah. yeah, I'm lucky. There's like some stuff that people who haven't had, you know, the experiences that I've had can copy. And then there's other stuff that was like, you know, drawing not professionally at all, but um, as a hobby for many years. That's so cool. I, yeah, I'm taking a look at the preview where you're talking about some of the interior art. And yeah, that's, it looks fucking great. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really impressed with like the style that you held to with the vision of the project and like you continued it um, in the way that you did. And this is, this is a really professional product. This looks amazing. So I, I think more people should buy it. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna include a link here. Um, for sure. Let me, yeah, let me thank pop you. it out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, and there was a moment. It looks where, like it's worth the five dollars for sure. Yeah, this is. This yeah, I think you know part of my like anxiety was like trying to make a product that I I felt proud about slapping a five dollar price tag on, which I'm not sure is fully. You know, that's hard to think about because again, you're competing against like um, Wizards of the Post or Coast um, potentially, who spent like so much more money yeah. uh, than you. So uh, you know, and I and I still think that people should get paid even if they can't. You know, so it's it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a difficult. I 
I ran into this uh, sort of conversation um, with uh, some people who had produced this massive, um, and I don't know if they're okay with me talking about it, so I'll just be like kind of vague. They produced this massive product for DMs Guild, and uh, they were charging only $20, $25 for it. I'm just like, like you have, okay, let's review the amount of content you mm-hmm. have in here. You have twice the amount of content that you would find in a Wizards of the Coast publication this thick. And uh, you can't see on the camera, but like it's twice, it was twice the size of a Wizards of the Coast book. Uh, and you're charging half the price and the art is fantastic. The writing is immaculate. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is amazing about this. You need to charge more. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is the honest truth for most people, um, especially mm-hmm. creators really struggle with justifying the cost of their labor. Um, mm-hmm. And I have this conversation with GMs all the time. Like, I'm used to just doing this for free. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. do you want to make money? Well, then it doesn't make sense for you to charge the minimum wage line. If you do all the math, like factoring in how many hours you're going to spend doing this, how much is your overhead cost? Like, how many, uh, like, what is the actual like wage that you want to earn? And mm-hmm. a lot of people are, they, when they start out, they're like five to $15 a seat. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to run, you're going to work for six hours and mm-hmm. you're going to make 20 bucks. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. So you should charge more. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, I, I just released a, uh, like a week ago, I think I released like a money pep talk, which like gets into a bunch of uh, this kind of um, stuff. But yeah, I definitely think, uh, no, if somebody is interested in your product, they are probably going to buy it um if that mm-hmm. makes sense i mean especially yeah. in the price range that i'm ta- targeting for like a 20 page product like if mm-hmm. they are interested in your product they will probably spend five dollars on it and it i'm not sure that it being three dollars is going to make like more right. people buy it and if you're going to try to do an experiment with that you might as well make it five dollars to start with and say that you're getting like a 40 percent off or whatever it is and then that'll look even you know better kind of thing so you know and uh this situation you're talking about with like a ginormous book that's like was that the first thing that they had ever published like on dm's killed yeah you know because i think other ways to go about this or can you chop this product up into smaller products that then you get an audience for and sell you know in in in, uh smaller amounts like i definitely think um you know to each their own but uh like i think it is wiser to start with definitely smaller products and price them in the like you know five to ten dollar range depending on Mm -hmm. what you're uh, trying to do that's the smart thing However, I'm running a massive Kickstarter, so I am not. (laughs) Oh, but I mean, you're, you are like, I don't know. I'm so hyped for you. I was listening to the uh, Vineyard uh, AMA and I'm like, man, this sounds so cool. Like you are, you have a very ambitious thing that you're trying to do, but you're doing things right. It sounds like, like you're getting people involved in the project who have run Kickstarters before you're getting all these awesome writers on it. And then just like the ideas that people were talking about were really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am very, I'm very blessed to have this uh, safety net of people who have done all this stuff before, and they're just carrying me to glory. Well, <laughs> I mean, well, can I also say that um, I don't know if we're going to record this or not. But like, one of the things that I had asked you off camera was like, can I uh-huh. ask you about of things about being a uh, pro GM because you have a bunch of knowledge in your brain <laughs> um, about what kind of products pro GMs might want or find useful. And in the 
advertising for uh, the vineyard, I saw some like statistics that I'm assuming you probably pulled from the community. Like I did, you know, that is that is something valuable to you know you kind of know uh, what it, it inherently and you have connections to and like social cachet with um, you know a group of people that is that is not nothing. <laughs> like and it's honestly probably um, definitely part of why like a bunch of these really awesome people uh, agreed to sign on. You know, besides the fact that as far as I can tell, you're a extremely kind and competent person don't let me fool you um (laughs) yeah we we can get into that i did want to um talk to you about uh what your experience was like at big bad con and like your experience at uh storytelling collective first though if you want to let's talk about those things big bad con let's go okay big bad con um i went to big bad con in 2019 for the first time um 2019 was i was still working at google at that point and it was my quote-unquote year of conventions um i walked up to somebody and this this is going to show you like how funny google is so google had um these classes where they would bring in outside uh contractors that you could sign up for for just like fun stuff and they had hired um this uh uh teacher uh her name was karen twelves and she's um very much involved in the big bad community and um like larping and uh, ttrpgs and she was teaching a class about improv for gamers and i asked her to give me a list of um conventions that she would recommend because i'd never been to a convention before and big bad was one of the conventions on there so i don't know i note that as just like a way you can kind of do a version of cold emailing people that you meet for uh, for information because then i knew about this kind of um random little convention that i might have not known about otherwise and i ended up there in 2019 i freaking loved it big bad con has a very like weird you know everybody's welcome like weird little uh indie story games vibe to it or, or at least that was my experience in 2019 um i played a game called i was looking it up yesterday uh, i think it's called Murkurgur, um set in southeast asia like I, I don't think i'd ever played a game that was uh, written outside of the states before uh that experience mm-hmm. i play i played a game called the zone uh, which was a play test that has now kick started to like um hundreds of thousands of dollars i'm pretty sure um very excellent horror kind of like annihilation vibes game anyways big bad con was awesome uh and then you know conventions did not uh fare well during uh the pandemic uh but they started doing some online stuff um and then they went back to in person in uh 2022 like a month or two prior to big, big bad con happening i had signed up to be a volunteer ranger which is like do you have the ability to do that i think that's like an awesome way to meet people in the community and the rangers particularly at big bad con are just like the sweetest people um I had signed up to uh, run a play test of my game Jukebox, um, which was the first like on play test of a thing that I had written that um, I've done. Uh, and I just, you know, also filled up my schedule as an attendee. Um, and then as we got closer to Big Bad Con, because via this project I had organized, I had met um, Taylor Navarro, who's a Big Bad Con POC scholar. There was this other sort of networking component that I hadn't even been like aware of um, that I also experienced at the convention. I, I think the best like snapshot of this is literally the day before I flew out I was like um, there were a couple of events that were extremely targeted at um, 
getting uh, POCs more opportunities in the TTRPG space. Like that's another thing that they were doing in 2019 and they, man, they like really invested in it in uh, 2022. It's a great convention if you're a POC that's looking for opportunities, essentially. I didn't even know this. I just knew it was a cool con from um, uh, 2019, but I, I, I learned about it. I was going through. So they, they had this thing, uh, they had two events. They had a dinner, uh, which I sadly wasn't able to attend. And then also like a networking meet and greet specifically for uh, POC folks. We got this email email that went out which was like make sure you have your business cards the day before I flew out I designed a business card for myself that where I put TTRPG writer like on the business card um and I I sent it to a printer that was in um California to like print the next day even though I was back in Boston um anyways so I did that it was a very like slapdash um, approach to the networking part of it because I kind of only realized last minute that I was going to be in the room with like some really uh, amazing uh folks um but yeah, that was kind of the four different things I did. I've, I've attended as attendee, I've volunteered there, I've run a game there, and then I've, uh, you know, um, been a part of the networking uh, side of things as somebody who networked, not who organized any of it. Yeah, super cool. Okay. Do you have, so you've been, you said that you've been to other cons as well. How is Big Bad Con different? Yeah, so in 2019, I went to Gen Con, Kubla Con, um, a very small convention called Go Play Northwest, um, and then Big Bad. Big Bad, like the reason I liked it was kind of the for the gushing that I did in the beginning it's like it attracts a very um I think sort of diverse audience of people it's kind of small and it's focused on like indie story games to some extent although in 2020 they had like 70% of the writers who wrote on uh Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel um show up there because they were very involved in like the POC um track offerings um so yeah I mean Gen Con was massive and huge but it just didn't have the same sort of audience I don't think that there's it's like two things i don't know if there's like that many conventions out there that are just kind of focused on like you know where there will be games of thirsty sword lesbians as like a major offering like i don't i don't even know if big bad con has like adventuring league or pathfinder which are kind of if you go to like ttrp conventions like usually their main offering is you can go there and and like um play um adventurers league or the pathfinder equivalent to that like big bad con is like people play testing their like weird little games or their like niche like nordic larps or whatever Mm -hmm. maybe that's not for everyone i freaking love that kind of stuff i think it improves me as a game designer um to play it and to like a lot of times meet the people who are who are making um those games the go play northwest though also which um i think is in your neighborhood like are you in seattle i don't know if this is (laughs) yeah that's fine yeah i'm in the seattle area um that was another um awesome con it definitely had like i think it was smaller and it had less uh, money than big bad con like it took place in a single um, large uh, room and like a university building kind of thing uh, but that was also like playing sort of similar kinds of uh, games and things and the other thing about Big Bad is just like the POC track that they've like they really put their money where their mouth is um, in you know ways that you know like I, I worked at Google and like Google will organize women's events and like do things for uh, POC or whatever but just like the the actual like willingness to put up work and money that like the organizers of uh, Big Bad uh, Con shown was like very inspiring and you can tell that from the uh pocs that attended and like what they say about um the con yeah absolutely 
What has your experience been like for a storytelling collective? Yeah. Okay. So taking a step back, storytelling co- collective is a basically it's online courses, sort of like what I was used to making for like a, a programming concept, but for um, getting into writing, um, they started off. I think they were originally like the RPG writer workshop. So their initial offerings mm-hmm. were focused on writing D and D adventures, essentially. Um, and Ashley Warren, who you said you have the podcast and probably did a better pitch for her thing that I'm going to do right now. Um, you know, has done an amazing job of like actually creating courseware that is a pathway to start writing um, on uh, DM's Guild and how to make like quality products and to start thinking about it. Um, so in terms of uh, TTRPG writing, um, and they haven't announced these classes again for 2023, I, I certainly hope that they won't do more of them. Uh, they have an offering called Create Your First Encounter and then Write Your First Adventure. Uh, Create Your First Encounter is, I think it's like 20 bucks, or at least that's how much it was before and you end up creating a one page um just like usually one scene D uh, encounter over the course of a month and you kind of go through this very fast little like mini loop of creating a, a single piece of content for D&D um, and then they take all of those together and they put it into like a compendium of uh, encounters and they put it up on the guild uh, for you and they even give you like a royalty split which is not going to cover even the cost of the like not a lot of people buy the thing but it's cool to see you know your stuff up and yeah. published and I just think it is such a smart way to like allow people who are still have like a full-time job and are fairly busy to like dip their toe in the water and i i just really recommend it if it's even something that you're like uh vaguely um considering as like the the lowest possible um barrier if you have yeah we your first yeah sorry i was just gonna say we stand ashley warren on this podcast mm-hmm. so that's that's perfectly okay yeah i'm probably gonna put your podcast next to ashley warren's when it comes out let me check my schedule um so uh oh and i guess i should also say that i am a 2023 uh storytelling collective uh creative laureate so um besides yeah. already being very biased I'm now officially biased by having like a, a title attached to it. Um, right. But so uh, yeah, so then you have write your first adventure, which is also amazing, an amazing course. Um, it takes place also uh, over the course of a month, but instead you were writing a, uh, I think they suggest a 5,000 word adventure. I think for people who are uh, extremely organized or have some free time or kind of know what they want going into it, that that, that is also an amazing offering. Uh, certainly if you're trying to build up a portfolio, having a full-fledged uh, adventure is like something you're going to need definitely at some point um and i also want to put out there that like i when i was working a full-time job i struggled to finish that and there were many reasons for that like i definitely bit off more than i could chew but i uh i think it's a great course and also if you're you know working a full-time job while you do it and you don't end up finishing don't beat yourself up about it um i'm, I'm pretty sure that even like people who eventually transitioned out of jobs and into ttrpg careers like mentioned that they didn't finish it by the one month deadline so yeah definitely it's it's good to just have that structure though and like have Mm -hmm. some reinforcement you're being managed and you can just be an employee because that's a what a lot of us have sort of been trained by in this capitalist hellscape is to like (laughs) meet deadlines or uh at least try to meet deadlines or like know that you owe this work that needs to be done uh eventually to like a certain specification and learning how to do things the specification is such an important part of fitting in in the workplace and tabletop Mm -hmm. where 
most of what gets you gigs or uh, gets you more work is your reputation based around, do you show up on time? Do you do the work that's assigned? Uh, are you good to work with? And that's those three things control like you getting future gigs. Once you break in and like people understand that you're good to work with, then all of these other gigs appear for you because you have this reputation of being good to work with and you deliver on time and all this other stuff. So having that structure given to you by Storytelling Collective, I think is so important when you're just starting out. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can, if you want, take more time. It's not a bad thing. But at the same time, it's it's probably important for you to understand, like, how would this work if I was doing this for bongo bucks mm-hmm. or I was doing this for uh, actually being paid? Yeah, I think I think um, encounters is good, even though it's shorter, because I think a lot of people will be like, yeah, I can write 5000 words in a month. And you just don't realize that <laughs> um, if you're doing so. I, I think that it's OK to start with something uh like it's better to start with something small and complete it than to uh, do something like overly ambitious. Like that's another thing you got to learn is like how much you can actually uh, do and not overcommitting and, you know, not burning out. So that's just why I think if you're uh, a working professional considering um, starting with encounters, because you can always then um, do uh, the full adventure course. Um, But yeah, no, definitely want to echo that like my mentors have driven into my head, like show up on time, get stuff done on time and then do some stuff to spend show up on time get stuff done on time that's kind of you know you got to figure that out yourself as to how you know to do that I'm, I'm sure there's tons of resources but like right to spec that is some of the stuff in these courses that they're going to like uncover for you what that means and some of the knowledge that you should have coming into the industry where you can pick that up by looking at random twitter threads and like blog posts or whatever but part of paying the like 20 to you know maybe 30 or 40 dollars for the course is it is all outlined for you you make sure that you don't miss any of it um and and you get the deadlines there too and a community mm-hmm. that's actually the um uh the other thing that i, I wanted to highlight so you get invited you get invited to their discord server um if you take a course and you are you do the class with other people and uh i mean essentially like i'll be writing about it on my uh, newsletter but like that's how i found my uh, first collaborator collaborators was uh, was that community and uh, being very like analytical i guess about who i reached out to um, yeah but yeah but even before that the other thing i did where i organized a project while i was in the course it gave me people that i could do editing trades with um in a way where if i had just been doing this alone i would have been like begging my friends to read over you know five thousand words of my stuff you know they are lovely people they definitely would do but it just feels kind of crappy versus like an editing trade you can you know get like <laughs> first of all the person's in the class so they they probably know like can edit a little bit better and um second of all you can repay them back by looking at their work and third Mm -hmm. of all hey look you've just sort of networked with somebody by like making a connection with somebody that might actually be um you know trying to write uh ttrpgs yeah that's such an important distinction for most people when they first realize that is like a light bulb going off in your head you mean i don't have to actually and i always talk about like coming to the table with money that's like Mm -hmm. what i know how to do personally like um because i have built my business and like i've you know developed this platform where i'm like hey here's how you make money but a lot of people really if you don't have that amount of time you just need to find a collaborator that is has a like skill set that you need and is going to complement each other and then when you collaborate together then that's how you build those real connections and like not everybody is going to be able to afford to go one-to-one uh with you when you're first starting out getting paid and stuff like that so really it becomes this trade where you're conducting mutual aid and you are um (laughs) 
helping each other succeed because you are uh, helping each other with your products. And that's how you uh, build teams that are going to last you a long time uh, when you're in these, like when you're in like the storytelling collective or somewhere else, or like in the DM skill creative lounge, where you you are connecting with other people who are at your level and are going to help you succeed over a long period of time. Everyone likes to like look up instead of looking at where they're at right now. If you don't have a portfolio, well, you just need to get with other people who don't have a portfolio or who has maybe one or two things on their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And then you work with those people, you complete a thing, then you have something on your portfolio. And then along the way, you will have at least peripherally perhaps been noticed in the community if you're participating in the community and you're not a piece of shit and you are... um, um, an important note, uh, don't be a piece of shit. <laughs> Great career <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, so you are, you know, you, you've made the thing. Maybe some people have taken a look at it. And then when you reach out to people, then you can like include that thing. Like, here's a link to my portfolio. These are the things I've worked on. These are the things I am working on. This is what I would like to work on with you. And that sort of just builds itself and you gain momentum over time. One of the things that I really look for um, in people is not necessarily like a large portfolio. It's whether or not they have the skill set to do the thing that I would like to do with them. Um, and for the most part, uh, I well, I guess I could talk about this. Um, there are, I think, three or four people uh, who actually five, I think there's five people if I just off the top of my head out of my 20 person team. So 25% of my team um, for the Vineyard RPG are people who don't have credits. I think about that and I verbalize that um, at least at the time when I hired them, I didn't know that they had credits. For instance, when I was talking to uh, Chelsea about joining the Vineyard RPG as a writer, um, I had faith Chelsea's ability to tell a story because of Chelsea's uh, ability to GM and the way that they told stories as an actor, as a performer, I knew that they were going to be able to sort of translate that. Even if they needed a little bit of help, I was going to be there for them and try to meet them halfway as a producer in order to get them there to produce a product. But some of Chelsea's writing is like some of the shit that I'm most proud of. I had no idea that Chelsea was secretly working on Fallout when I initially <laughs> hired uh, Chelsea to, to work with me on that. Uh, but it was really because I built that connection with Chelsea previously. Um, in the actual play scene and uh, in their production work for Cobalt Press. So like these connections that you initially make with these other people in your peer group um, are so important in order to like, like you, you build a crew essentially, you know, um, that's the mean build, build your crew. Uh, but yeah. Okay. So, uh, there is, there is, uh, one thing which I've been meaning to write a blog post out about mm -hmm. for a while. And I, I feel like it's like the one smart thing I did when I was organizing my collaboration is sure. it is very much copyable by pretty much anyone, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is, so, uh, if you want to do kind of the stuff that you're describing and you don't already have a bunch of friends who are, you know, into, into TP, RPGs and you're very new. Um, what I did was I took the uh, Write Your First Encounter course. When you take the Write Your First Encounter course, you have a cohort of about, it was like 80 people in mine that uh, also took the Write Your First Encounter course. I, um, uh, I mean, hopefully this is okay to say. So you get the, uh, uh, you get the compendium uh, uh, when you're finished of uh, other people's work. And they, they published two compendiums actually in, in my cohort. And I actually emailed Storytelling Collective. It was like, hey, I'm trying to organize a group project. Can you send me the other compendium? And they were super sweet and they did I, hopefully that's not a bad thing to say but anyway so mm -hmm. i had i had i had uh two compendiums with 81 page uh 
uh, encounters. And um, I went through uh, every single one of them and I uh, basically acted as if these were 80 people who were applying to work on a project uh, with me because I knew I wanted to run something and I knew that the uh, fact that these people had taken this course probably implied some interest in like writing for TTRPGs at the very least as a hobby and possibly uh, getting into it um, professionally. Then um, I uh, took the people whose uh, one-page encounters I like and I did a little bit of like looking into who they were um, uh, you know out in the world uh, kind of thing and I'm like all right I have the six people that I would really like to work with and now I'm going to do the thing that you were kind of talking about which is uh, cold emailing them uh, but not cold emailing them um, you are asking for something but you are offering something because in my case I was offering them a, a project and you know they've all taken this course like they probably want <laughs> um, uh, an area to be able to uh, do you know their writing and I didn't know how this was gonna um, go uh I, I will um, sort of type up and share the way that I um, went about it uh, when I get to that in my um, newsletter. Um, but uh, I, I reached out to six people and out of the six people, five of them said yes. And like, I had my I had my crew then. Um, I had like a second round of people that I was going to reach out to because I didn't expect people would say yes to essentially nobody that didn't have a portfolio kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, and that was a that is the project that eventually ended up with me getting um, professional uh, like mentorship in the TTRPG uh, space. Like there were a couple other steps in there, but that that's like uh, uh, that got my foot in the door, I guess. So, uh, you know, and I think one of the other things with sending out that initial email was kind of the thing that you were talking about, which is knowing how to present yourself if you don't have a particularly uh, large portfolio. So all of that rambling off I did in the beginning about how like uh, technical um, writing is, you know, sort of similar to uh, uh, adventure design like I had a bullet pointed list of like the skills that I thought I brought from other parts of my life um I put in there that I had done layout before and I had like the I, I included my own adventure or my own encounter that I had uh, written so that they could look over it and also be like yep this is a person who's you know writing and layout sensibilities like I agree with okay, so that's my hack that I think literally if you have 20 bucks to sign up for the uh, write your first uh, encounter course you, again you kind of need the time and the energy or whatever yeah. um, to like go through all this stuff like you could do and you can find a group of people um, I think and I'm going to be I am going step by step into more detail about my whole experience doing that mm -hmm. um, but honestly i think that that's like the probably the biggest uh unobvious thing that i did dare i say the best twenty dollars i spent in 2021 the storytelling collective course that I bought. It's it's a lot of good shit. And, and I even like, um, and I'm obviously new to tabletop, but like, even like for me looking over the project management uh, course that they have and like going from start to finish on a project. And like, these are all things that are available on storytelling collective. And it is so amazing that it's sort of like democratized so much of the process where it used to be like kind of held in this ivory tower, like ivory tower gaming, like in third edition, where if you didn't build the correct way, then you were going to be way outpaced by everybody else in the party um, and be useless. But um, yeah, the same principle there where uh, the Ashley and uh, her team now um, have really created uh, an economy where... Mm -hmm people are able to participate and understand how where their place is and to find community uh, within 
you know, this group of writers that are all from different places in the world and um, different backgrounds. I think that uh, probably it should be noted that I highly recommend uh, being in these Discord communities of creators uh, where you can find them, either mm-hmm. at DMs Guild or Storytelling Collective or wherever you might find that sense of community. I participate in business cohorts all the time. That's where a lot of my uh, sort of like playtesting for business happens. Um, (laughs) So when I am developing stuff for my business, I am sort of talking about it with other people who are also Mm -hmm. content creators or who are also um, entrepreneurs in different fields and getting this common thread of like, what's going to work, what's not going to work, and what do you recommend based on your experience is very important. That's why I pay money for those cohorts. That's why I attend these different things. And the money I spend probably on personal development for that, it's probably like $100 a month or so, maybe a little bit less um, based on like the various cohorts that I'm a part of. But like that barrier to entry because it's like 20 bucks. I mean, if you've got the 20 bucks, it's going to put you way far ahead, which is, you know, the the unfortunate truth of our capitalist society. You can definitely invest in yourself and see great results. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Storytelling Collective is one of those things that you can the, definitely do. The business cohorts that you're talking about, is that through other courses that Storytelling Collective is running or some other uh, platform? Yeah, so I um, I haven't been for like the last three months because I just haven't had time to keep up with it. But um, for about a year, year and a half, as I was like building my business, I mm-hmm. was participating in Devin Nash's mastermind community. Um, Devin Nash is a person who runs an agency um, called Novo, and he represents uh, basically almost every style of creator um, within like the new media place, like everywhere on like Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, Twitch, YouTube, so on and so forth. Um, and he represents people like Amanarath and Pokimane and has done work from every big name company that you can think of in the space. And he has built this mastermind uh, discord where he just talks business and new media. And he puts out like videos talking business to people because he has like curated like his brain in such a way like he's been working in new media. He used to own an esports organization. Now he runs this agency. And this is someone who is like sharing their experience Mm -hmm. to anyone who will listen for literally like 25 bucks a month. It's like, it's so valuable. Like you can't like get a better deal anywhere else on the internet. $25 a month to talk to someone who's worked in new media for 20 years. And it's like, one of the most influential people in the space and who makes who knows how to make educational content that's like you're not going to find that anywhere so anyway um yeah little thing about that but yeah i i do attend like other stuff like um recently i was in like a twitter growth academy cohort and i was like looking at basically it's run by the uh i love them to death but like the most annoying like twitter people that you can imagine (laughs) um like in financial twitter but mm. they know how to grow on Twitter. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> um, you know, play the game. Don't hate the player. Don't hate the game. Uh, so, I can't even say it right. But anyway. Learning from all the like Bitcoin bros or whatever. <laughs> well, none of them are Bitcoin. But, um, and yeah, there's. There, there's a, there was a couple of crypto people who had joined the uh, the Twitter growth program, and I was just like, eh, not gonna interact with you. But um, and that's just because of the stigma of Web three and like NFTs and stuff. But um, Web three is not necessarily an an evil thing from my perspective, but like crypto definitely. Uh. But um, yeah. So anyway, you have questions for me. I've got roughly twenty minutes. Um, okay. Let's do it. Uh... Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so uh, to give a little bit of context to folks listening at home, um, I 
don't know much about the professional uh, GM community, and maybe I'm already saying something wrong, but it seems like a potential like group of people with their own needs and uh, their own way of using products that might buy adventures or other supplements that I write. Um, so these questions are all kind of focused on uh, what information can I get out of the next 20 minutes that uh, might give me a little bit more uh, insight into that. So let me go find my questions. Uh, um, are there non-obvious, um, and I know with the curse of knowledge, it's hard to tell what's yeah. obvious versus not obvious, uh, differences between DMing as a pro GM as compared to running a game uh, for your friends? And then I'm specifically uh, interested in this, like in terms of how you use something like an adventuring module. Like, you know, for mm -hmm. example, I if I pick up an adventuring module, I'm probably going to run it once for my friends. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. a pro GM's running it like 30 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, so the non-obvious thing that we can talk about table culture here. So table culture and then uh, player buy-in first, and then I'll transition to talking about uh, the second part of that, which is um, how adventures are written and how I can help people who are writing adventures to sort of appeal to pro GMs more. Is that your full mm -hmm. question, right? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so table culture is different than uh, non-paid games because um, people are invested to be there and they know their money's worth. So whatever that means to them, like some people who pay $5 to play in a game are the biggest dicks you'll ever meet. But I, what I found is actually once you cross the median of like the average price for a table, which is $19 as of the time of this recording in March 2023, um, and it'll probably be more as, you know, inflation rises. But once you go to the right of the median, uh, once you go to the right of the average price, players are actually much nicer and less demanding, to be quite honest. Um, and maybe part of that is like, as you progress up the pay scale, maybe you are just getting better. And so that you're meeting people's expectations. But at the same time, I feel like people who pay $30, $40 to sit down and play a game, they're much, they are in a privileged position, I should say, to be able to pay for it in the first place. If they feel like they're not getting their money's worth, they're not going to yell at you. They're not going to cry about it. They're not going to complain because they don't need to. They can just go somewhere else. So for professional games, once you get past the sort of median, um, people just straight up just leave your game. They are not having a good time. And that's that's okay. It happens even to like the top pro GMs. Like I have people leave my game all the time. Um, not necessarily because they're not having a bad time, but sometimes the, the normal reasons that people leave a game, like scheduling or something happened, or uh, in this case, like um, in, in some cases, I should say, like sometimes their financial situation changes. And that's fine. Uh, and it's something you have to deal with. So I would say that for professional games, you have a little bit more of that expectation that you're gonna have attrition. Because when attrition happens for a home game, like you stop the game, like the game's over. The campaign normally assumes in the way that they're written that you have the same people at the table when you started the campaign as mm -hmm. when you ended it, which is not the case for professional games. So if you're going to make adventures, segue, um, to appeal to pro GMs, you really need to orient your things, um, your things, your adventure hooks. You need adventure hooks if you're writing an adventure. You need to provide something that is very viable for a pro GM to insert new players into the party with as little fuss 
plus as possible. So for me, and I'll give you this example for like Curse of Strahd, right? I run a ton of Curse of Strahd. I'm like kind of winding down with that, but I think I've run it like um, from end to end. I'm like coming up on like my third closing one, but I'll, by the end of the year, I'll probably have run it, uh, say, uh, fully like nine times. Mm -hmm. Um, And you really need like a way to, let's cut out the 45 minutes of can I trust you at the table when people are just there to play the game. So what I do is I have... um, and obvious spoilers um, for Curse of Strahd. Uh, it's, you know, eight years old or whatever. But so Van Richten, uh, so it's uh, a femme version of that in my game, Rictavia. Um, she just drops off Monster Hunters. So after the first um, 15 sessions or so, or you make Rictavia probably around session eight to 10, once you're in Velaki, Rictavia provides you with new joints to your party. And they just drop them off. It's like, hey, I got some new Monster Hunters for you. Um, and then, you know, that's it. And that's a hack. That's like a hack you made to make it uh, right. workable in the context that you're doing it. All right. Awesome. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. keep going because uh, I got yeah. 10 or 11 of these guys. Okay. So uh, sort of the opposite of that last part. Is there anything that makes, you know, besides what you just talked about, an adventure uh, particularly like hard to use as a pro GM? And feel free to say, I can't think of anything. Uh, I have more questions. Um, What makes an adventure hard to use as a pro GM? As a pro GM, I need a linear... I need a linear structure to fall back on. If I don't have a linear structure, then that means that I am having to prepare more. If I don't have something that I can reference the book, pick it up, open it up, and then if I need to directly read from in order to use, then I am less likely to use your adventure because push comes to shove. My time is really... And sometimes I have to set people up before the game comes on and our, or like I had something come up, but I still have to run the game, right? Um, I still have to show up to work. It's very difficult to run an adventure if everything is either dependent upon one plot hook or one, if an adventure has one point of failure, I'm not going to run that adventure because like I cannot just run something that can be ruined by someone that up and leaves the table or I have to remove from the table. Um, not that I have a ton of problem players. The plot hook is really determined by like one player's interaction. Um, I can't really run that adventure. So I would say that you need, um, and I kind of talked about this for storytelling's sake on uh, when I was talking to Zipper on Disney. So I structure my uh, prep in like three session arcs. So the rule of three. So I have a each session is a contained story arc and then it has like rising action falling action and then uh resolution and then um each three uh games has like its own rising action falling action and then each uh chunk of story is about nine sessions sometimes a little bit less sometimes six to eight but each session is sort of uh each story arc is sort of set up like an hbo series in which i have some conclusion because what i need from an adventure is i need for there to be an accomplishment where the player can feel like their actions mattered in a short period of time because if someone is deciding if they want to stay at my table Mm -hmm. a lot of it really comes down to player agencies and accomplishments and feeling like they're involved and they matter whatever they're doing so if by the end of the session that hasn't happened i have to have it happened by the third session because that's when people decide to like leave the table or not is by the third yeah exactly (laughs) by the third session but if we get to the end of the second month and they still haven't had a payoff then i've got a real problem because then i've got a player who when something else comes up in their life 
if they are much more likely to not rearrange their schedule for my game because they don't have to be here because they don't feel like they're directly involved in what's happening. So I have to, by the second month mark, really have a huge impactful thing that that player has had a shared experience with mm -hmm. this table. And when you have people joining in the middle of a campaign and you're trying to integrate them, that's why I also break them up into those the rule of three. So three sessions and then the nine sessions so that when they join a party that has all of these shared experiences and inside jokes or whatever, they can still join and within three sessions feel like they're one of the crew. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, so kind of getting to like a specific example, are there any D&D uh, &D adventures, either official or third party, um, that you think are kind of like the gold standard of a game for the context that you're running things? Um, my favorite Wizards product is Icewind Dale. Robin the Frostmaiden. Um, yeah. I think that's fairly obvious if you look like at who my co-creator is for Vineyard RPG. Like it's one of the co-writers of Robin the Frostmaiden. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then one of the original reasons why I reached out to Michaela was because I wanted to work with them because I knew that they had done work on this product. And, um, you know, as it turned out, just through happenstance, they, because they, the Wizards doesn't list like who writes what, but that person also wrote some of the stuff that I most love out of that adventure. So mm -hmm. just through happenstance. So like, um, but yeah, it's, I would say Icewind Dale. It has uh, in the first two chapters, there's kind of a disparate difference between like the first two chapters of Icewind Dale and then the rest of the book, minor spoilers for Icewind Dale. Um, first two chapters, open sandbox. It's its own adventure. It's its unique game. It has the thread. It has the interest. Once you take the thread, you follow the thread, then you have a link your storyline for one or two sessions and then you come back to 10 towns and then you develop that in, in, in that way and all of the all of the uh stuff is set up in that way now what you need to do as a pro gm you need to take some content from chapters three to seven or eight or however many chapters are in there i forget um, and you need to put that in the first two chapters um, as sort of like, you know, hey, here's a little story hook here and there. Here's a little bit of information mm -hmm. that'll like kind of seed. Foreshadowing. It. Yeah, you need to foreshadow, you need to seed stuff um, or you need to like alter it in such a way to allow the players to feel like they have some agency or participation because the rest of the book is um, set up in kind of a linear uh, story fashion, which is okay. Um which is great, I think, in, in a lot of instances where you're like, you want, at that point, many tables want to feel like they are reaching the conclusion of a story. But I think one of the things that was missed in uh, the publishing or the somewhere in that book, um, I think that team did a great job of like integrating everything. Unfortunately, there's not enough threads that connect from the end of the book to the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to change one thing about it, that's what I would change. But I think it's overall the strongest product that Wizards is put out um so the same question but not like adventure books just like supplements uh that are out there they're particular like monster manual supplements or npcs or other things i might not even know about that you use a lot um as a protium or something that doesn't exist that uh you know somebody could write for you are you, are you offering <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say that the Cobalt Press um, books on like world building, game design, I would say that those are probably some of the best products out there, the how-tos. Um, I've really enjoyed reading those because they have such a, they have so many different people from uh, both the game industry and just media in general coming in to help write advice. I would say probably the best um, product out there, um, Taldori Reborn. That is my favorite product. Um, I love it. It is great to read. Um, it's fun to read, first of all. And then secondly, it has great stuff in it. The art is immaculate. The layout's great. The editing is really well done in the layout. Um, the writing's really great, of course. And 
there's so much in here as a GM that I can just like look up, look up a location, right? And someone has like some sort of connective tissue to like Amon or something. And I just look up Amon and I read the however many paragraphs they put for Amon. And then from there, I just write that down. I put it in my prep notes and then I sit there for a minute. Wouldn't it be cool if, and then after I think that, then I have what the session is going to be. That This book works amazing. So if you don't have Taldori Reborn campaign setting from Darrington Press, I highly recommend that. That's probably my favorite product. Are you are you using it in um like with a like call the nether deep or something like a uh yeah yeah so i um i'm running uh three exandria adventures right now um mm-hmm. one of which is a call the nether deep but they've kind of like so they got lost in jorhas and they just fucked around mm-hmm. in the desert um before bazazan and it got to the point where literally they would just like and this is so weird to talk about but like i'll talk about it briefly um and i love that table it's my thursday night table i'm actually seeing them later today um <laughs> love, love y'all uh but yeah they for a while and i've had this conversation with them after they left the initial part of the adventure and they were just in the desert like they they would they would show up and then our gossip time was getting out of control too so we would have like an hour of gossip time before we even start playing but they would just bullshit as their characters um in the middle of the fucking desert like hey we made camp and then they like i at one point i gave them like an evil talking sword um that they were talking to and like that was the main plot line for like five mm-hmm. fucking sessions is where they were talking about the sword talking to them and like then they would also like they were just doing like queer stuff like in the middle of the desert i think it was 15 sessions where it took them it took them 15 to 20 sessions to get from jigao to bazazan which is normally as it's written like a three session thing like maybe four sessions but they had it i love that table but like we're on session 37 right now we're not even like a third of the way through the book like they finished bazazan and they've kind of fucked off and they want to do their own thing now they yeah they went into betrayer's rise and now they're going to gordranes um they met uh varen thales um who has like a romantic thing with one of the characters so they are going to gordranes and they're just going to hang out with hot boy and there's going to be some politics that go on and go with Thrawn and it's going to be a homebrew after this. Eventually, maybe I'll put them back on the Netherdeek path, uh, but they got the they got their ass beat by the rival party and um, had their uh, had their evil sword taken from them, which was a uh, Lolth uh, vestige of divergence, and um, that'll come back to haunt them, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, but yeah. for for the time being, they're going to get delved into the politics of Gordranus. Yeah, I'm fascinated by like what you do on a pro GM table when you go off script, but I think that's like less related to the question. I want to get through, but it is a fascinating thing to think about. Okay, are uh, so are you playtesting or working with other pro GMs uh, to get feedback about the vineyard? Um, yeah. And if so, any hot tips about how you are uh, organizing that? Yeah. Um. So organizing that, I'm not really. Um. I am. It's not organized. It's just me just being like, hey, do y'all want to playtest this? Cool. I'll give it to you for free. Great. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um. And then also I once in a while because i have this community built on my platform pull them and i ask them and then i show them stuff for the vineyard and be like hey what are your thoughts about this and then normally they're just like hey it's great um so i think i need to step outside of my own community to get some valid uh a little more valid feedback i appreciate everybody like yes ending me and going yes queen um i need some like feedback from people who don't love me um <laughs> you know what i mean so uh yeah, i, I get out of the echo chamber a little bit yeah, yeah. no i yeah 
yeah, definitely have gotten feedback from like dear friends and then also just putting stuff out more yeah. broadly on the internet. You get very different things. Yeah, um, I need to I need to reconnect with Pesto because I was gonna I was talking to Pesto, who's the uh, playtest coordinator for MCDM to do mm-hmm. our uh, official playtesting. Uh, but they need to be compensated to do that. So I'm like waiting to like have the funding to do it. And then I was talking to uh, we'll see if I can uh, mix our playtesting or work together with Cobalt Press for their Black Flag playtesting. Mm-hmm. I will be running Black Flag uh, tables at Gen Con for them as part of their playtest. Um, I'm curious to see if they are willing to do that, uh, some sort of integration with the Vineyard. We'll see. I don't know if they will. We're partners with them, but like at the same time, they have to sell books too. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to keep asking questions, but if you need to wrap up, you just let me know. Okay, um, okay. so uh, I am curious if you're seeing traction for other systems outside of uh, D&D and the ProGM community, especially if there might be a dearth of content um, for them. Um, I, I feel like listening to your other stuff, I've, I've heard a little bit about what's going on with Black Flag. I'm actually interested if there's like Blades of the Dark or maybe, you know, a huge desire for Thirsty Sword Lesbian, you know, one-shot adventures or something. Right, yeah, so um, one thing to keep in mind for introducing people to new systems is that it's really difficult um, in the pro GM scene anyway, because you're asking for money. And one of the things that is the biggest barriers for people to uh, try something out is whether or not they're familiar with it or, or they trust its basic like, are, am I going to have fun doing this? Am I I'm paying money to have fun? Is this going to actually be fun? So having a the credibility to say, like, if you play a new game with me, I'm telling you, like, high probability you're going to have fun because you like playing with me and I like that running this. And I'm telling you, like, you, you're you probably going to have fun. I have that backing already. Like, I have over 100 reviews on Start Playing Games. I have over 500 professional games. I have this large community that understands that they like to play with me, right? When you're new and you don't have a platform and you don't have brand credibility, it can be really difficult to sort of establish that for a new system because you have two unknowns then you have you as a game master like i don't know if i'm going to want to play with this person and then i don't know if i want to play that game because i don't know if that game is going to be fun so whatever you can do to reduce the barrier to entry for someone to understand whether or not you're a fun gm or the game is fun and that's why i tell pro gms you need to get a video reel or even an audio reel of you gming in order to remove that barrier. And in sales, that's really all it's about is when you're having a sales conversation with someone, whether it's a static thing, like it's an advertisement or like it's your listing on the start playing games, you need to remove the barrier of what would prevent someone from buying your product or your service in this case, right? And the barrier is, am I gonna have fun? Am I gonna enjoy this? So that is why you cater your advertisement specifically to the audience you're looking for who will enjoy the game. And then you're also demonstrating with proof a product is what it's called through a video or through an audio source this is what it's like to play with me and that is going to remove so many different things that are going to prevent people from playing with you i tell you all that to further emphasize people do not try new systems because they are afraid of wasted time so if you can reinforce the uh them it's that it's a good thing for them to take a chance on you by providing proof of product and uh speaking directly to them in your advertisement then you're going to have more people uh joining your game uh when it's a different system other than D. um i would say that it is difficult even for me sometimes to fill games that are not D. um and i'm kind of seeing that so i have seen success with like vampire i have seen success uh with alien i have seen success with uh thirsty sword lesbians but these things don't just happen 
overnight, unfortunately. And if you're trying to run indie games as a pro GM, it can be very difficult. So that is why you sort of need to create everything from like high, like high, like high level, like artistically speaking about this indie game and why it's important. Nobody cares about that. Are they going to have fun? You need um, to that. Yeah, this kind of gets into like one of the things that I'm sort of worried about, which um, we didn't touch on upon, which is like as because uh, I think I've seen you say stuff, which is basically like you should be running Curse of Straw because people are going to recognize that. And that kind of like leads into they like they know that they will have fun. And then you have me sitting over here that wants to write my like, you know, own thing that's not attached to, you know, maybe any um Wizards of the Coast IP or whatever, or a market for that, like, are pro GMs running things that are not um, Wizards of the Coast uh, books? Um, and yes. So, like, what kind of, yeah, what are they buying? How are they finding out about it? Um, I think right now, um, after the OGL controversy, it was 70-30 mm-hmm. um, on D&D and then everything else. So it used to be 90-10. So the market is way different now in the wake of, like, OGL. And there is a huge opportunity for a lot of people who are pro GMs at this point. Uh, it'll probably be May when this comes out. But there's a huge opportunity for people to slowly like build up your brand as someone who runs like indie games or something else. If you want to run Blades in the Dark or something like that. The problem that you're going to run into, though, is advertising and credibility and these things that are moving back to. And you can run anything that you want to run. Um, I think for just for uh, transparency on like what the start playing games numbers are, uh, I believe Devin has said like it's half and half for homebrew or like campaigns that are modules that are prepared. So like there is a huge market for it, whether or not that market is there for the higher price points, I wouldn't really be able to tell you with like any amount of like uh, sort of certainty. I I think it's difficult to articulate that sort of thing um, because there is that credibility that comes with running a product that's well known that has a good reputation that removes a lot of barriers for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting, though, is, um, and I'm not personally familiar with this, but you're running like a gender bent um, Curse of Straw. Mm-hmm. Was that uh, a resource that that you wrote or homebrewed, or was that something you got somewhere else? No. So uh, Beth the Bard wrote it. It's a DM skilled product. It's a bestseller. Okay. It'll be. It'll have a second edition here soon. I am a contributor for it, so hopefully Beth doesn't throw away what I contributed. <laughs> uh, but like, I'm a contributor in second edition. Uh, I wrote the partners, uh, the as they were known, like the the brides or the harem but it's it's altered mm-hmm. to be less less sexist in uh, beth's version but yeah i i would say like she is the ancient is probably my number one product for that um followed quickly by like drag uh free stuff that he put out on reddit mandy mod and then in addition to that i use quite a bit of stuff like benios battle maps which is like uh foundry specific like uh 3d unreal engine um battle maps that are fully animated that you can put into foundry which is just amazing and then there's there's a lot of resources out there for like campaigns and part of why i say that when you're initially starting out maybe you're just like building an audience or you're just like trying this out for your first time there's not anything wrong with running wizards products i am personally choosing because i'm in a good position to not support them with money at this point and that's okay and that's what i choose to do because i don't want to give them more money uh, at this point based on uh, what they've done that's not everybody's situation so if you are trying to build up your brand you don't have 
the privilege that I have in a lot of ways where I can take a hard stance like that. Like I can just cancel my D&D Beyond subscription and it doesn't mean anything for the amount of money that I make. Um, because like people who are in my community now and are committed have been committed because they're still here after I started my business over a year ago. So um, I think that's also important to consider and just verbalize is I have said these things and maybe at some point wizards will win me back or something. But, um, and I love the studio team. I really like to see a lot of the individuals who I really admire and respect who have recently within the past couple of years kind of been hired into it. And like a lot of other creators, my, the bad blood between me and wizards is not between anybody who makes the products. It's between other people, uh, in Hasbro. It's like, it's just one of those things where I think it's a, it's a, it's a give and take no matter what you do. You're going to have to work a lot harder to be successful if you want something that is not even considered by 70% of the market. All right. So let's say that I uh, make a, a product like an adventure. Where would I advert? Is there anywhere that I would not obvious that I would advertise it where pro GMs might be looking more? Where do they find out about products? Um, again, I'm kind of looking at this through the lens of like, you know, I'm not going to write a wizard's book yet. right? <laughs> anytime soon. But you um, wouldn't so say like... no if they emailed you, right? Yeah. So yeah, I don't think I mean... <laughs> I don't think any I don't think anybody's in that position really. And I and there's nothing wrong with writing for wizards. They're paying you to do a job, of course you're gonna do the job. Like it's work, you know? We live in that capitalist hellscape. There's nothing wrong with that. So yeah. But um, yeah, so where can, where do most pro GMs look for stuff? Word of mouth. Um, word of mouth and like permeating the SPG community, the start playing games community is probably one of the best ways you can do it because G- pro GMs talk to each other. Um, mm-hmm. Pro GMs in my community especially talk to each other like all the time. And there's all these little pockets uh outside of my community within Star Playing Games where people like recommend things to each other. And yeah. I wouldn't even have on my radar like the Dungeon Dudes Drakenheim setting if I didn't have a pro GM in my ear every single week telling me about his Drakenheim campaign yeah. um, and how awesome it is. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where grassroots marketing is more powerful, especially when you're starting out because you want to, if you can afford it, just give a few copies to some pro GMs if you can afford it and then get their feedback and see if, you know, they're interested in, um, you know, telling their friends about it, essentially. And just writing a review on something and like putting in there, I was given this uh, as a courtesy copy right at the top of their review. And then it's ethical, right? So I I think it's one of those things where if you are looking for a way to sort of break into the pro GM community um, with your products, you got to... You got to make stuff that they want and getting that feedback from them and providing that to them is either play testers or um, or as a like a a free product or something or a sample or something. Um, I think that's probably the best way. Um, Just look at like some of the top GMs, look at what they're running, send them an inquiry uh, if they've got like their socials listed. Um, I don't recommend that you use the platform on start playing games to like query them for work or anything like that, because that's not what the platform is for. And it's actually against uh, site rules. But if like they have their socials listed, you go in there and you just hit up if they've got an email listed okay yeah i think that's super um interesting because i've done playtesting actually playtesters are some of my like biggest people who will be like yeah this is really cool um but i haven't specifically uh targeted pro gms but that makes total sense like they are connected to other gms who might eventually buy the product so Mm -hmm. um yeah no that's super cool let me see if there's anything else here um i've got time for one more okay so i'm i'm a little bit curious just talking about these connections with like pro gms and then people and just any other parts of the TTRT. Have you seen anything interesting happening, like a connection maybe with a particular creator that's, you know, done something with uh, Pro GMs or like 
streamer pro gm uh kind of cross collaboration um i'm just kind of curious if there's anything that you want to shout out as kind of like a cool collaboration that's happened hmm. the publishers and sort of the platforms um that are now starting to get in touch with start playing games as a community mm-hmm. are that's increasing in frequency and if you're getting started on systems other than wizards products um that is happening regularly like i received a free copy of pirate borg um mm-hmm. to run that for their SPG event. And they directed their community through their newsletter um, that they had built their community to start playing games. And like they said, hey, be a part of this event. And then people who wanted it would just sort games by that event and then play Pirate Borg right when it came out. So like having yourself in that position to where you are receiving these new products as a courtesy and then running them for eager players from different communities is a great way to break into it. Um, Sometimes your games don't fill. Uh, Maybe you are just not as established as a GM. Maybe you run on the side. I think it's difficult to fill games in general if you don't have reviews, you don't have games run, and you're just, you you have that unknown factor like we were talking about. But once you get a little bit of uh, momentum, um, those events are really huge for like when you're just past the entry level and you're like still in the beginner level and the intermediate level um, with your business um, in order to get more exposure and uh, everything like that. And really, it's exposed me to more products that I really love, like Pirate Borg. I love Pirate Borg. The naval combat in it is so fucking cool. The book itself is really fucking cool. You know, I'll probably buy a physical copy of the book at some point just because it's beautiful and I love it and it's just like a piece of art. So yeah, I would say... um, the collabs, the yeah. Thing, the thing that this is making me think, because I'm not a big studio or whatever, but if I were to like hold email, uh, you know, so find some GMs and be like, hey, do you want to play test this? And then after it comes out, be like, if you run some games, I'll take the people who are on my newsletter and be like, hey, you want to play this thing that I've been talking about that I'm making? Like, go sign up for their tables. Um, that sounds like potentially a thing that might be a, a, an interesting thing to try. So anyway, yeah. thank you so much for like <laughs> answering uh, all those questions. I've turned your interview of me into me interview you. No, that's fine. It's a this is a mutual podcast here, mutual aid. All right, thank you so much, Lila, for for coming on. Hi, thanks for listening. If you want to support me, you can find me on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash, or you can find some of the work that I'm doing at VineyardRPG.com. If you want to pre-order the book that we made.